Welcome to Michigan Opera Theater's Opera Here podcast. This is Andrea Scobie and Arthur White with Michigan Opera Theater. We are thrilled you have joined us today as we preview composer Terrence Blanchard and librettist Michael Christopher's opera in jazz, Champion, which debuted at Opera Theater of St. Louis in June 2013. This production marks the fifth time the opera has been produced in its seven-year history, and on today's podcast, we'll tell you about the story of the opera, explore the life and legacy of its protagonist, Emil Griffith, and we'll be joined by two special guests who will give us some insight on the stage production, which opens Saturday, March 28th, and runs through April 5th at the Detroit Opera House. Before we begin, we want to recognize and give a sincere and heartfelt thanks to Jake Neer and WDET for their assistance in producing our Opera Here podcasts. Terence Blanchard's opera, Champion, is the true story of Emil Griffith, the welterweight boxing champion of the world in 1962. He was also a closeted gay man whose knockout and subsequent death of a homophobic rival live on national television on March 24, 1962, changes his life forever. The opera opens 43 years after that fight with Emil, now nearly 70 years old, struggling to dress himself due to the onset of dementia brought on by the years of boxing. He receives assistance from his adopted son and caregiver, Luis, who reminds him they must hurry or they will be late with a meeting with Benny Perret Jr. It was his father, Benny Perret Sr., who Emil Griffith killed in the ring at Madison Square Garden on that fateful day in 1962. The elder Emil is distracted because the voices of the past have begun to rush back to him. His mother, Imelda, his trainer, Howie, the homophobic bully, Benny Perrette, and the drag queens from the bars in Times Square. The elder Emil recalls days as a young man working at a hat factory in Manhattan. His big chest and broad shoulders caught the attention of the factory owner, Howie Albert, a boxing enthusiast. He began to train Emil, and soon the young boxer began to make a name for himself in New York City. At the same time, Emil found himself drawn to the secret world of gay bars and drag clubs of Times Square, where he begins to explore his own sexuality. Emil was born in the Virgin Islands in 1938 and was separated from his mother at age nine when she left him to go to work as a cook for the governor of Puerto Rico, putting Emil in the care of her cousin Blanche. We now see Emil in his childhood with his fundamentalist Aunt Blanche who sensed something feminine and less manly in Emil. She attempts to force the devil out of him by making the young boy hold cinder blocks above his head for hours as she beats him with a strap. The action now jumps to Madison Square Garden, March 24, 1962, as young Emil fights for the welterweight championship of the world. During the weigh-in, the current champion, Benny Perrette, begins to hurl homophobic slurs at Griffith before all of the press in an attempt to embarrass him. Emile is hurt and humiliated and sings his aria, What Makes a Man a Man.
The bout begins and is an even fight until the 12th round, when Emil traps Benny Perret in a corner and unleashes 17 punches in 7 seconds. The fight is stopped by the referee, Perret falls to the mat unconscious, and Emil Griffith is crowned the new welterweight champion of the world as the curtain falls on Act 1. When Act 2 opens, we see the elder Emil standing over the hospital bed of Benny Perret, who is in a coma. Emil is as tortured today as he was 43 years earlier. The elder Emil, still struggling with reality, tells Luis he has just seen Benny Perret, but Luis reminds him that Perret died 43 years earlier in his hospital room. The action now shifts to the young Emil in his prime. As a champion, he enjoys money, fame, and celebrity. He meets a beautiful woman, Sadie Donastrog, and immediately proposes marriage. She accepts, but he quietly returns to the gay bars and nightclubs, and when he is questioned by his mother, Amelda, he pushes her away, calling her undeserving and a freeloader. She expresses her guilt of being an absent mother and her own difficult path in Araria far away long ago. The young Emil continues to rack up championship belts, and after a press conference where reporters ask Emil about taking a man's life in the ring, his trainer Howie completely absolves Emil, blaming Perrette's death on the referee, the rival trainers, and the violence inherent in the sport in his soliloquy, How Does It Feel to Kill a Man? By 1969, Emil's winning streak comes to an end as he begins losing fight after fight over the next several years. When Howie sees Emil is unable to set his watch, he realizes that Emil is beginning to suffer the effects of his many bouts in the ring. Howie decides the two need to have a heart-to-heart talk. Emil continues to find solace in the bars, but one night after leaving a gay bar in Times Square, he is attacked and savagely beaten. He cries out for help, and the action now shifts to present day. When Luis comes in to console him, Emil cries, I kill a man and the world forgives me. I love a man, and that is an unforgivable sin. The two now leave to meet Benny Perrette Jr. When they arrive, the elder Emil believes he is seeing Benny Perrette Sr., the dead boxer, but the young Benny Perrette explains that he looks just like his father. Emil apologizes to the son for his father's death, and in a deeply moving moment, the two men share an embrace, and Emil knows now he has been forgiven, the one thing that has eluded him all these years as the curtain falls. You know, for me, uh, that is the the big moment of the opera. There are a lot of great moments in the opera, but that final scene uh, is just so moving. We see Emil, this quest for the entire opera, looking for that forgiveness, and he never finds it. And he meets uh, Benny Perret's son, who really isn't 
necessarily coming to uh, to forgive him. Uh, he kind of meets him because he was asked to meet him. I think at the end, Benny Pratt Jr. needed that final embrace almost as much as Emil Griffith needed it. I think you're right. And it's such a beautiful moment in the opera. You know, Emil Griffith in real life um, was plagued by nightmares about Benny Perrette through his whole life um, and has has talked about that moment meeting Benny Perrette's son and just what a what a weight that was and what a change that was for him um, to be able to feel that moment of forgiveness and sort of um, make amends and find reconciliation with a member of Perrette's family. That was such an important moment for him. I also think it's very interesting that moment happens musically with no music. That's and right. So it's a great testament, I think, to Terrence. Uh, any other composer would have said, ah, this is the big moment. I got to throw some strings or I got to, you know, have some lush music here. And he stops the action and lets that embrace actually unfold in silence, which actually makes it for me even twice as powerful. Yes, it's definitely just this beautiful, powerful moment. I think it's made all the more so just by us being able to take in that moment in silence. Um, You know, uh, Emil had also said uh, about this moment in his life, you know, I never went to jail, but I was in prison all my life. Um, And I think that he he probably felt some freedom in that moment in real life. You know, he was haunted by the death of Perrette, but I think he was also haunted by this secret that he kept all his life by being in the closet, by being, um, you know, bisexual, by being gay. You know, there have been different sort of uh, interpretations of what his sexuality may have been throughout his life because he was never, really fully, fully out until the last years of his life. And I think it's important to understand the climate that Emil Griffith grew up in and lived in, um, in regards to society's view of the LGBTQ community. Um, The United States has a deeply entrenched history of discriminatory practices against gay and lesbian citizens. Um, The first recorded police raid in American history on a gay gathering space took place in New York City in 1903, which really established a culture of both formal and informal harassment of gay communities. Legal punishment for homosexuality um, were known to be uh, lengthy prison sentences, fines, and hard labor. Emil would have been a teenager just beginning his boxing training um, in the 1950s, a decade which John D'Amelio, who is a professor, author, and noted LGBTQ historian, um, has called, quote, the worst time to be queer in the United States. At this time, the psychiatric community regarded homosexuality as a mental illness. And this was also the time of the Red Scare, the congressional witch hunt against communists during the early years of the Cold War. This is a well-known and well-documented era in American history, but what is much less well-known was the concurrent congressional investigations that came to be known as the Lavender Scare. Beginning in the late 1940s and continuing through the 1960s, thousands of gay employees were fired or forced to resign from the federal workplace because of their sexuality. Um, Homosexuality was seen as subversive and threatening, and the federal government made the claim that LGBTQ employees posed a security risk. They declared that if gay people were living double lives, then they may not be loyal nor mentally stable enough to keep government secrets. On April 27, 1953, President Dwight Eisenhower signed an executive order which listed sexual perversion as a fair reason to terminate someone's employment. And as a result, an estimated 10,000 civil servants lost their jobs. The methods used to carry out the investigations were sweeping in their scope and in their intrusiveness. To identify homosexuals in public employment, the FBI sought out cooperation from state and local police officers um, to supply arrest records on morals charges, regardless of whether there were convictions. They sought out data on gay bars and lists of other places frequented by gay individuals, and they looked up press articles from the largely underground gay world. 
In an outrageous act of invasion, the U.S. Post Office established a watch on individuals who received magazines from gay publishers, who subscribed to pen pal clubs, and who initiated correspondence with other people who believed they might be homosexual. And it was in this environment that young Emile came of age. There was societal pressure to stay in the closet, which was so great. And that was compounded by this hyper-masculine world of boxing. Um, Even writing or talking about homosexuality was not condoned. When reporting on the way in where Benny Perrette was lobbing slurs at Emile Griffith, the New York Times wouldn't allow the word homosexual to be printed. Instead, the paper referred to Griffith as an un-man. All of this created a mass of contradictions for Emile Griffith. He never fully hid who he was. One writer noted that Emile walked proudly through the front door of Times Square gay bars rather than slinking in through the back, and that it was an open secret in the boxing world that he had relationships with men. But despite this, Emile mainly stayed in the closet. In 1971, Arthur, as you mentioned, he married a woman named Sadie, although this marriage lasted less than a year. Like so many others, had Emile Griffith been born in a different time, perhaps his life would have been very different. But no matter what, his legacy still continues to influence those who came after him. Orlando Cruz, who in 2012 became the first boxer to come out while still active professionally, has reflected on Emile's life and influence, stating, I know the pain of that fight. Griffith could not come out. I have the chance to be different. In 2012, Cruz dedicated his world title fight to Emil, calling him a brave man and a great champion. Wow. It makes you think, you know, this is seven years before Stonewall and Emil Griffith, a, a boxer in this very macho you know, sport, is walking through the front door of a gay bar and not going through the back door right. is is just tells you what kind of like gumption this guy had. Absolutely. <laughs> and and I think loyalty to the people he knew. You know, he had friends who were uh, dancers, who were in the drag world. Um, he had a good friend who actually uh, worked at Stonewall, was a dancer at Stonewall. And I've mm. um, read some interviews since saying that, you know, Emil may have not felt like he could fully be out, but he wouldn't betray his community, um, which I think is is interesting in the fact that he never was really fully out himself. Right. It's funny, even though we have made such great strides, what, 50 years, but uh, that we, we are still struggling with the same thing to this day, aren't we? Absolutely. I think Champion really gives us a great opportunity to, you know, look back and examine this history a little bit and think about how far we've come and maybe how far we've not come. Um, and I think the creators um, have done such a wonderful job in, in telling the story that lets us ask these questions. Um, and I'm hoping with that, Arthur, you can tell us a little bit about the creators, um, specifically about the composer, Terrence Blanchard. Sure. I guess lucky for us, Terrence Blanchard was a big boxing enthusiast, and so I'm sure that played a part in him taking a part in this project. Uh, You know, he's the six-time Grammy Award winner who hails from New Orleans. He's a jazz trumpeter, a composer, an educator. His father, Joseph, was a manager of an insurance company and also a part-time opera singer. So you can see how the connection would have been uh, important to him. Terrence begins to play the piano at age five and eventually takes up the trumpet with childhood friend Wynton Marsalis. He goes on to Rutgers where he studies piano, saxophone, and trumpet. He is known as a straight-ahead artist in the bebop tradition of Miles Davis and John Coltrane, but he also utilizes an African fusion style of playing that makes him unique amongst other trumpeters. Now, in the 1980s, he emerged as a brass-wielding force of nature, playing and learning alongside Lionel Hampton, Art Blakely, and, of course, Wynton Marsalis. After performing on soundtracks for Spike Lee movies, including Do the Right Thing and Mo' Better Blues, Lee asks Blanchard to compose the scores for his films, beginning with Jungle Fever in 1991. 
Uh, Blanchard has written the score for most of Spike Lee's films ever since, including Black Klansman, which Blanchard received an Oscar nomination for Best Original Score in 2019. In all, he has composed over 40 movie scores, penned the 2006 gripping Hurricane Katrina documentary, When the Levees Broke, a Requiem in 4X, as well as works for television and the concert stage. In 2011, Blanchard took an unexpected turn to Broadway, scoring original music for the well-received play The Mother with the Hat. As we mentioned earlier, on June 15, 2013, Blanchard premiered his first opera, Champion, at Opera Theater of St. Louis, but he actually returned this past year in 2019 for his second opera, Fire Shut Up in My Bones. Now, the Metropolitan Opera announced it will stage Blanchard's second opera in their 21-22 season. This will be the first production by an African-American composer staged by the Metropolitan Opera in the organization's 136-year history. We are fortunate to be joined by the performer who portrays the elder Emil Griffith in Michigan Opera Theater's Champion. He has sung for New York City Opera, San Francisco Opera, Washington National Opera, Seattle Opera, Cincinnati Opera, Lyric Opera of Chicago, and he recently made his Metropolitan Opera debut, uh, and we are just thrilled he has set some time aside to speak with us today. Please welcome bass Arthur Woodley. Thank you for being here. It is a pleasure, a true pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much. I had the great opportunity to see your performance as Emil at the premiere of Champion for Opera Theater of St. Louis back in 2013, and you ah, simply yeah. blew me out of my seat with your singing, which was a masterclass in itself, as well as your uh, acting. Uh, can you tell us, how did you come to be associated with this piece? Well, the truth of the matter is, I was just, in essence, sitting at home when I got a call from Opera Theater of St. Louis. I had been there times before. I think I did Billy Budd with them, The Barber of Seville, uh, Ipuritani, and uh, something else. And I got a call asking if I would be interested in, in an opera that, that was being done, that was being created at that point, about Emil Griffith, the story of Emil Griffith. And, um, you know, it, it piqued my interest. I said, wow, that sounds fantastic. Tell me more. And, and we talked a little bit about it. And therefore, I, I came on board. Yeah. Wow. Simple as that. Um, so you were born in New York, but raised in St. Croix in the U.S. Virgin Islands. Um, about, That's correct. About 40 miles, actually, from St. Thomas, where Emil Griffith was born. Um, That's right. Were you familiar with him and his story before this project? I was familiar not with his total story, not with his entire life. All we heard, um, this I was a kid at that point, all we heard was about, you know, there was this, this Virgin Islander who was a world champion boxer and was the first one. I mean, yes, we had some baseball players, Clark, who, would, who played for the, the, uh, the New York Yankees and things of that sort. We had a few of those, but he was the first real world champion in boxing and everything. So, yes, I, I knew of him in that way. And also because, you know, here in my churches in, in Harlem, at that point it was called Third Moravian, and then it became United, Third Moravian Church, which is filled really with, with uh, people from the West Indies. Everyone knew of him in that sense, yeah. How would you say your background and upbringing there informed your portrayal of, uh, of Emil? Well, I, I, can, I can tell you this. There is a scene um, in the very beginning um, when he's going to take that airplane from St. Thomas to New York. And uh, there's a ticket that is that is used at that point. It's a Pan Am ticket, 
Well, that was the same type of ticket that I took to come to come back to America. Mm. So it stirred all of these memories of of me, you know, returning to America. But wait, remember when I went to the islands, I was a baby, so I have no recollection of of, of America in in that sense. So for me, it was just like coming to this brand new place and everything else. So I understood what that must have felt like to him as well. So it was it was serendipity. They didn't know. No one knew that that I had that history. But there it was. Wow. You've been performing this role in different cities now over the past seven years. Um, have wow. your Has your view or interpretation of Emil changed uh, over the course of all these productions? I think I think each time you do it, you, you you know, you have new people you have. For me, the most important thing is to always try to deepen my interpretation, to find a little bit more, a little something else, if at all possible, in the character or something that I see in a character that someone who's on stage with me that, that perhaps we can work on together or something of that. So in each and every production, I try to make it a little deeper, a little, a little more meaningful, not only to the audience, but also to myself. Now, Mr. Yeah. Woodley, you recently made your debut at the Metropolitan Opera House uh, in the yeah. season's biggest hit of Porgy and Bess as a yeah. lawyer Fraser, as well as yeah. uh, in, in Puccini's La Boheme. Uh, what has this meant, this debut, at this time in your career uh, and at this time in your life? Uh, yeah. And what was it like to sing for the first time on that big stage? Well, really, it's before you do it. It's the, the rehearsals before your, the, the actual opening. When the actual opening comes, you're, uh, you know, I am so focused on what I have to do, who my character is and everything else, that you just go about your work. But, you know, days before, it's like, wow, so this is it. This is the, the biggest stage we have. And so there's a great feeling of fulfillment, a great feeling of satisfaction, a great feeling of gratitude for all the people who came before me, all of those people who walked that stage, but not only the people who walked that stage, but those people who kept telling me, you know, you can do this. You know, you have a talent. Please keep doing it. The little old ladies at church who would say, here's a dollar. You know, if that, I hope that helps you to buy some more music so you can come and sing for us. All of those things washed over me at that at that point. It was a, a thank you as well for all of those people and, and for, for my mother who... At one point, it said, oh, maybe we'll have a doctor in the family and was OK with me becoming an opera singer. So I'm grateful to all of those people, all of them. Fantastic. Thank you. Now, as opera enthusiasts, Arthur and I have spoken a lot and have been thrilled to see uh, operas like Champion, Blue, mm-hmm. the Central Park Five, um, yeah. stories of the African-American experience being portrayed more on the opera stage. Um, what do you make of this new outpouring of storytelling and the state of opera today? It's glorious. It's fantastic that that the stories are now being told, the good, the bad, the, you know, the truth. That's what you want to see. That's what you want to portray. Our lives are uh, very important. We have a lot to say, a lot, in essence, you can say now to sing about. We are now finally getting that opportunity and it's all pouring out. And as you can see, as as well as most people, there are so many talented African-American singers who are out there to interpret 
you know, these pieces that are deep in their in, in their souls and bones, as well as other pieces all around them. But to have the quality of African-American composers and African-American subjects, in essence, is just a kind of paradise. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing to have and to explore. It's been great. Well, one last question, going back to Champion, if I may. Do you have a favorite yeah. moment of Emile's? Wow. I would suppose that after the beating and that moment when he says, when he, he says, you know, I killed a man and they forgave me, you know, I mm-hmm. loved a man yes. and they want to kill me. Mm-hmm. That moment and the moments that follow, the moments that follow right after that, the forgiveness of Benny Perrette, the, the junior, the, the son, yes. and then all of those people coming on stage and he realizes that it's his life, that it's all there, and he is loved. Wow. He is loved for all that he is, for all that he was. He is loved and embraced. I think that is a, um, it's a moment that touches me each and every time. Wow. It, it well, never fails. Well, Mr. Arthur Woodley, thank you so much for being our guest. We can't wait to see you on the stage at Michigan Opera Theater in just a few weeks. Thank you for being here today. It'll be my pleasure, and I thank you very much. Professor Naomi Andre is a musicologist, author, and opera lover whose research and public scholarship is radically influencing the conversation around race, gender, and class equity in the opera world. Her recent book, Black Opera, History, Power, Engagement, was hailed by the New York Times as a necessary exploration of how race has shaped the opera landscape in the United States and South Africa. In July 2019, she was named Seattle Opera's inaugural Scholar-in-Residence, and she has been involved in advisory capacities with the Long Beach Opera, Cincinnati Opera, Cape Town Opera, and the Glimmerglass Festival. We are so proud to partner with Naomi Andre in our work and to welcome her today to the Opera Here podcast. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, you are a professor, an author, and a musicologist. Um, How is it that you came to this field? Can you tell us a little bit about your operatic beginnings? Oh, sure. And that sounds so formal. (laughs) I was fortunate in that I grew up around a lot of music, and especially classical music. My mother um, is a soprano, and although she's not singing so much now, she had classical training um, for a couple of years. She was at the Julie school in New York City and trained as a coloratura soprano. So I grew up listening to my mother sing me the most elaborate, wonderful lullabies. Um, (laughs) My mother did not have a career really in opera, but she was a singer who sang a lot in churches. And so I have early memories of not just the lullabies, but also whenever we would drive anywhere, um, she'd sing when we, she sang as special music for a lot of churches. And so I remember just watching her do that. And she would sing Mendelssohn and Handel and Haydn and a lot of um, classical things. So that sound was never weird to my ear. However, it wasn't until I got to high school and I had a friend who um, got me turned on to opera, almost like a drug. And we went to a lot of classical music things together. And it was strange because we didn't, um, we didn't really hang out too much outside of music at first, but we both were the ones who would go to the different 
music programs. And um, then he said at one point, hey, there's a magic flute happening. Do you so wanna- illicit. <laughs> <It's> the best <laughs> kind of peer go? pressure. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, um, okay. And it was it was great. It was in English, and it was actually the Wilmington, Delaware Opera Company. And it was not at all intimidating. It was fun. I didn't fully understand everything. It was sort of long, and I was um, in high school. But that got me. I was already used to the sound of an opera singing like voice, and so I thought, oh, this is telling stories. This is great. Now, Naomi, the opera champion is often referred to as an opera in jazz, and there is some precedent for a fusion between the two musical styles. Can you talk to us about the ways Terence Blanchard is building upon a legacy and also the ways in which he is pioneering a new direction? And he is doing just both of those things, as you mentioned. Perhaps in more modern times, like since the 80s, the person that I think about who really put his mark on writing operas that were very infused with jazz is Anthony Davis, a Mm, jazz musician Mm -hmm. who I think was working on the East Coast, but now he's based in San Diego, teaches at University of San Diego. And his first opera, um, X, The Life and Times of Malcolm X, from 1986, was had uh, was performed by the New York City Opera when it was um, it was a bold, wonderful move for them to do. And um, he had part of his jazz band or jazz band orchestra, Epstein, his group, play with the New York City Opera Orchestra. And that, I didn't get to see the premiere, but luckily we have a CD of that opera, and it is just, it sort of has the virtuosity and the improvisatory feel, though my sense is that everything is written out, is all in there. And so hearing Terence Blanchard's music, now he's somebody coming to opera who has a lot of experience um, with film scores and with jazz and with other music, and so, uh, which we can probably talk about later, there's a bunch of opera happening around black composers now. And he's somebody who is really bringing a lifelong experience to it. And so Champion just um, has both the full orchestra sound, and it sounds like, okay, the orchestra's, a Western orchestra is being handled well, but it also has this type of virtuosity and improvisatory feel that I feel is a big part of a jazz-infused opera. Now, Naomi, you just alluded to um, a number of operas that have been composed in the last decade, which focus on black stories, um, not only Champion, but uh, Blue, The Central Park Five, The Summer King. Um, We are thrilled that these stories are coming into prominence in the opera world. Is there a catalyst you can point to for this kind of outpouring of storytelling? You know, that is a great question, because I had always thought, oh, it's Anthony Davis who really starts things going with Acts, Life and Times of Malcolm X in 86, and then with Amistad in 97, and he has other operas in between there, but those are on black topics. And then just as you mentioned, the Central Park Five, just from this past June at the Long Beach Opera. Um, However, he is not working in a vacuum, and it turns out, so current operas, like from the 2000s, We've got, as you mentioned, The Summer King. There's Charlie Parker's Yardbird by David Schneider with um, Bridget Wimberly. That's from 2015. 
There's um, We Shall Not Be Moved by Daniel Bernard Romain and the libretto by Mark uh, Bamuthi Joseph, with and that was choreographed by Bill T. Jones in the fall mm. of 2017, Douglas Tappan's I Dream, which is about Mal, uh, Martin Luther King from to revised in 2018. I mean, I, I mentioned those to say there are a lot. There's some earlier in the 2000s, like Margaret Gardner, that the Michigan Opera Theater was a co-commission um, with Cincinnati and Pittsburgh, I think. That um, is about the historical character of Margaret Garner, on whom Toni Morrison uh, based Seth from um, Beloved, from her Pulitzer Prize-winning novel. And Toni Morrison also wrote the libretto uh, that was premiered in 2005. There are so many of these operas. And so Terrence Blanchard is coming into a great time where it seems... We're getting new stories being told on the opera stage. But I just want to mention that while these new operas are happening and they're great, and I have just touched the tip of the iceberg of the few I mentioned, I had always known as a musicologist that Scott Joplin wrote at least one opera, Tremonisha, and William Grant Still had one opera or more. And it turns out William Grant still has a lot of operas. His um, Troubled Island from 1949 was also premiered by New York City Opera, and he was the first African-American to have an opera performed by a major company. But we also have Scott Joplin wrote other operas that hopefully we will find one day, not just Tremonisha. Harry Lawrence Freeman is a composer who was writing operas in the 1890s. There's the Theodore Drury Opera Company that um, a really wonderful scholar, Kristen Turner, is um, doing a lot of work on black operas, operas by black composers, mainly sung by black singers, right at the turn of the 19th to 20th century. So this is revising what we're doing, how we think about opera in the United States. And I think Michigan Opera Theater is really bold for being a leader in doing this with Summer King that you had mentioned about Josh Gibson, an opera on the life of Josh Gibson by Daniel Sonnenberg and Daniel Nestor. I got to see it, and he did a terrific job with that. And now doing Champion with Terrence Blanchard. These are amazing, wonderful things that is bringing this new time in opera to the public. Now, uh, Terrence Blanchard's second opera, Fire Shut Up in My Bones, as you know, debuted at Opera Theater of St. Louis last summer, and it's going to make its debut at the Metropolitan Opera in the 21-22 season, marking the first time that institution in 136 years uh, has produced a work by an African-American composer. Uh, This, of course, is obviously a, a milestone to be celebrated. It's also hard to believe in 2020 there are still barriers like this left to be broken. Can you talk about this specific moment for what the opera world is right now and what this means as we reckon with this reality? Absolutely. And you're right. This is an historic moment, and a lot of us feel that it is overdue, but we're thrilled that it's happening. So the Metropolitan Opera, the biggest company here in the United States, and one of the biggest companies in the world, when they do something, it sets a nice precedent. 
And so it wasn't until 1955 when they had Marian Anderson sing Ulrika and Verdi's Ballo and Mascara that we use that as a date now to say that opera, the opera stage became desegregated, or at least it was moving in that direction. She's not the first African-American singer to sing on any opera stage. In fact, there were other, a couple of other stages in the U.S. and in Europe. However, that was the major movement where all of a sudden it became an open thing that more companies were doing. And we begin to see this wonderful generation of black opera singers, Leontine Price, George Shirley, Shirley Verrett. I mean, the list goes on. Even though we had had Matawilda Dobbs and Ciceretta Jones and Elizabeth Taylor Greenfield and lots of other singers, and I went back to the 19th century as well as Matawilda Dobbs, who was contemporary with Anderson. So, when the Met does something, it's an, it sets a good precedent. Having this opera by uh, Terence Blanchard, his second opera, right after Champion, be um, on their docket for the very near future is huge and wonderful. And it's nice that there's some other companies in the United States that have been leading the way. And I would say Michigan Opera Theater is one of those for championing, <laughs> without trying to make too much of a pun here, other operas by black composers and having black singers on stage. Yeah, that was definitely a focus of our founder, David DiChiara, um, and we are, um, of course, so happy to carry on that legacy to keep telling these stories and making sure that, um, you know, singers from all backgrounds have have a stage, have a platform. Um, returning to the story of champion Naomi, um, I'm wondering if you can talk to us a bit about uh, the life of Emile Griffith, both as um, the character Emile, but of course as his real life person as well, and how the intersections of race and sexuality shaped his life and experiences. Well, unfortunately, we, even in our lifetimes now, we've seen this wide range of people who are LGBTQ having a really hard time in the mainstream. Luckily, we now have legislation and things are changing. And I think particularly this younger generation coming up, they're used to seeing a wide range of diversity around sexuality and gender expression. I also think this younger generation is open to seeing more people of color, not just black, but also Native American, Latinx, people from different countries in Asia. So having a general larger, um, not tolerance, because that's what they had in the 1980s when I was coming up in college. (laughs) Now I think it's a real appreciation of having different viewpoints. Emile Griffith had both being an African-American boxer as well as being a, we're thinking, sort of a bisexual man. And it just was not at all possible for that to be an out experience um, in the mainstream, particularly with his boxing career. I think there's an important story to be told in sports and what that's doing with African-Americans and cultural acceptance and this journey we're going through. And it's really exciting to see this happening in opera. His sexual preferences, we don't know too much about them that comes through the opera except, and I think there's a nice element that this is who he is. We do see that this is not a um, an allowed thing because there are a couple of scenes where he is sort of behind 
closed doors and bars that are sort of underground where he has sort of meets different men. But he gets married and he sort of has this double life where he's the sort of virile, traditional, masculine view as a boxer and has a a female wife. And then he has this other side that happens. And what comes through very beautifully in the opera is that we're introduced to Emil Griffith at a later stage in his life, in the very beginning, and that character sort of shadows us around. And who his caretaker is turns out to be somebody who's actually a really important familial figure in his um, in the life he's created. Oh. Naomi, how would you say contemporary operas like Champion are changing the perceptions of opera? You know, what is it? Uh, what can it do, and who is it actually for? I think the number one thing we see in opera today is that we get different stories. We have stories of people who are living today, people who we've known in the past, historical figures. So we have operas on Malcolm X, on Josh Gibson, on Emile Griffith, on Charles M. Blow, who is um, the subject of Terence Blanchard's second opera. And we have stories of people who are gay. We have people who are sports heroes. We have people who are writers. We have people who are civil rights leaders. It's just, and then you had mentioned earlier the opera Blue by Janine Tesori with the libretto by Taswell Thompson. What makes that so powerful for me is that that is a story about just a regular middle class black couple. He's a policeman. She is now devoting herself to becoming a mother. And there's there's no trauma or craziness in their lives. They are just regular, wonderful, loving people who get married and have a son and shower him with love. In the first act, we see so much about their her girlfriends and his guy friends. And so we get a regular life, a story that we haven't had enough of in representing black life. Not the superstars or the completely abject, but just this large group of people who we don't hear about too often, who are making it happen, making it work. And then we see that tragedy hits that family. So I think the stories we're seeing in opera, and we love this in terms of opera having a connection to the present and feeling real, Opera has always been about reality, believe it or not. It started in the 17th century where people wanted to have real feelings and emotion and the power of the solo voice. And this was compared to, contrasted to Renaissance polyphony, which was seen as being too busy, too many voices at the same time. But And we have different articulations of real life, verisimilitude, verismo, different terms that have been used in opera history for what is real. And sometimes it has to do with the emotions that we feel, the power of the voice. Frequently, we've had stories of gods and the aristocrats and the upper crust of society. And so, um, but at the end of the 19th century, there was an actual movement called verismo, sort of a realism, a naturalism. And that was moving to more regular people. Tosca is an opera singer. Scarpia is the chief of police. So it's no longer the kings and queens that we had before. I think in that energy, we're getting operas now that are showing 
people who are relatable to contemporary audiences with the new compositions. You've said, Naomi, I see opera as a space of liberation and activism, which I think is such a powerful place to operate from. Um, Can you elaborate specifically about opera as a space of liberation, um, particularly when it has maybe not existed that way in the past for some communities? Well, I got into opera kind of um, in a weird way where I was fortunate to hear great music growing up, and a friend brought me to opera, and I love the tradition. I remember going to opera before super titles were a big thing, and it was much more of a mystical experience (laughs) where I could afford seats that were far away, and I would just sort of enjoy the music and the sound, the orchestra, the voice, all of that happening. And I didn't realize, because that was so fulfilling and wonderful, once I started seeing operas that had stories that incorporate other issues of difference or things I could relate to. And I'll tell you, I felt with Aida, there was something really powerful about that story, how even though it's all set on the African continent and you've got the Egyptians, Aida is Ethiopian and she's different. And especially having the opportunity to see African-American singers, which was rare in the 80s. But um, I remember Leontine Price's farewell performance at the Met. I think it was in 85. I was just new to opera. There was something so powerful about her saying, oh, mia patria, how much you've cost me. Oh, my country, you know, I love you, and yet this is really a complicated relationship. That meant something as a black woman, for me, sitting in the audience watching her singing this and what she must have gone through. Now, I don't have to jump into the pharaonic past in Egypt and Ethiopia, but when I can see an opera such as Champion, where there's a mama who loves her son, and she's a complicated mama, she's not perfect, but I've known people kind of like that. And when I can see Blue with the policeman and his wife, and they are so looking forward to their child, and there's a little concern from the wife's girlfriends, like, oh, you're going to have a boy. What does it mean to raise a black boy today? I get that, and I don't think I'm alone. So to have these stories being told on beautiful opera stages with incredible singing, gorgeous costumes, beautiful orchestration. I feel like all of a sudden I've been set free. It feels like this moment of wonder and joy. And I know it sounds pretty intense, but even liberation. So that's what's behind that statement. Naomi, thank you so much for sharing that specifically and sharing um, in general and bringing your perspective to Champion. Um, Thank you for joining us today. Oh, what a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for listening for our glimpse into Champion. We hope to see you at the production running Saturday, March 28th through Sunday, April 5th at the Detroit Opera House. To purchase tickets to this production or to find more information on the opera, visit our website at michiganopera.org. You can also connect with us on social media. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks again to Jake Neer and WDET for their assistance in producing this podcast, and we'll see you at the opera.